Welcome to the Uphill Athlete Podcast. Our mission is to elevate and inspire all mountain athletes through education and celebration. My name is Steve House, and I will be your host today, and I am joined once again by John Laurie and Martin Zor. Welcome back, John and Martin. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. So we just heard John tell us about his, mostly his summit experience on K2. Martin, you were there this summer on Broad Peak, and what were your feelings? What was your experience listening to John's story? Uh, Yeah, thanks, Steve. So um, it was great to um, listen to John's story about climbing K2 without oxygen. We actually didn't meet. I was there a bit earlier in the season, and um, that's another story. We can talk about it another time, but I really appreciated to listening to his story, how it kind of went, and just uh, also having seen the mountain actually just from the base camp of uh, Broad Peak, which is right next to uh, next to K2. So um, it was really powerful, and just appreciating. Uh, maybe like hearing what actually went through um, John's mind and also physically what he was going through up there and just maybe it is really hard for people to imagine what it takes and uh, just those last two 300 meters above the bottleneck to the summit it was like the whole chapter uh, at, at least it feels like it for me and I can appreciate it because I went through some experiences on the mountains uh, and high altitude so uh, yeah, just wanted to mention that because uh, it certainly was, uh, I guess you're slowing down. You're really way above the 8,000 meters and physically it's just so hard. And uh, and all the factors that John mentioned that you cannot control. So, and then also listening to the way out, the, the way out of the base camp to Ascoli. It's, it's really a long way. <laughs> It's beautiful, but you really just want to go home and just want to get to the comfort and to your family. But it's a, it is a hundred kilometers of really hard track, and um, it's like the last thing you want to do. And also, then John, <laughs> what you went through also physically with the lungs, and uh, so yeah, I just wanted to mention that. And uh, before we move to the training and uh, the preparation, maybe. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, look in terms of um, the that that final little bit to this to the summit you know you you you've passed the traverse you've sort of passed the 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 technical aspect let's say the tricky aspect and now it's it's a snow ramp to a saddle and then another snow ramp right to the to the to the summit and that really for me was where a lot of the i really got the the experience that i was looking for and that was this experience of everything really else in my world was was sort of somewhat out of my mind and it was really me in that moment you know with my psychological you know sort let's say my mental and my and my and my physical sort of challenges you know going on um just working working with sort of what I had to get this task done and I I there's something I find very refreshing about climbing in general and that is that it's extremely engaging and this was 
the absolute, you know, sort of epitome of that. I, I was so engaged in what I was doing um, and I was beginning to feel like this was going to happen and that I was going to get this done. Um, and But I needed to continue, you know, working with my... You know, I, I obviously had the the body that I have, and I had to had to get that body to the top with the fitness ability, fitness and the ability that I that I that I brought. But then also my my mental strength as well to to keep pushing and uh, and just 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 that uh, that mix and and for that final five or six hours or whatever it was was uh, although although very challenging it. it and, and took me right to what I would, what I truly believe was the edge of what I was capable of. It, it, it was, it was exactly the experience that I, that I was looking for. And I think reflecting back now, I think that's part of why I feel so satisfied with the entire K2 experience for me, because it, it took me so close to that edge or right to the edge of, of, uh, you know, and, and was such a representative experience or outcome uh you know of to my ability um and and just and just that it 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 was you know just that very acute powerful experience pushing that final five hours uh five or six hours um to the to the very summit um so yeah i i i can't couldn't couldn't have asked for more uh in terms of uh, how I, how how my body, and how I sort of coped uh, through those final few hours and the and the and the experience itself that I had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is so interesting, and it touches on so many aspects of being an uphill athlete and whatever mountain sport you're engaged in. And, I think that when people talk about mental training and as I listen to you, John, I think about like you said, you you know, took you right up to your perceived limits. And I think in mountaineering and especially high altitude mountaineering, this is really the essence because what you're doing is some, you're, you're trying to do something that you're not sure that you're capable of. And but you're sure enough that you're going to try. And in this case, there's no backup. You know, you're in a situation where if you can't actually do it. Like, you know, you're going to die. It's quite simple. And so <clears throat> it's this push and pull between confidence and knowing that you can do something and safely return and this is, I think, what a lot of people talk about when they talk about mental training for for climbing. And, you know, as I've written and talked about before, you know, I think that this is 80% of mountaineering is knowing where these boundaries lie within ourselves. And the reason it's so scary and so hard is because the price of being wrong is so high. And one of the things that I see time and time again with every uphill athlete and you know, me and another coach, myself and another coach were having this discussion just yesterday with a, a person who w- he was coaching who climbed a traditionally protected 5'8 route 
and how that person was feeling about that. And, you know, it's the, the training is where you learn how much more you're capable of than you may think you are. And it gives you the confidence to, to do these things because you're stretched a little bit on a daily basis. And I think that the, that the mental, let's call it training, is you know very analogous to the physical training in the sense that you just have to kind of consistently stretch yourself a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. And you start to realize that what you're capable of is a, much more. A, it's much more than you imagined. And B, the only way to to expand that is to keep kind of expanding it in these little bits. These expansions don't happen in giant steps. You don't like, and it's just like training. You don't become 20% fitter through one workout. You become 20% fitter through 200 workouts. And mental, you know, the expansion of your own belief in yourself and what you're capable of doesn't ha- is this exactly the same way. It doesn't happen in one day. It happens in many little little incremental steps that when put together end up being these these huge reliefs and i think that that's analogous to so many things in life and i don't know and i don't believe that you know your mental fortitude in mountaineering necessarily transfers to sort of like your your abilities to uh you know kind of handle yourself in interpersonal relationships or maybe in your in your work life or something there's not a direct like if you're good at one you're not necessarily good at the other but in all of these ways in which we show up in the world this 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 process is is universal and that's what that's where i think that you know up being an uphill athlete is is so interesting and so useful and so frankly irrelevant as to what level people are at whether it's climbing k2 or climbing a mountain behind their house if that's where where if that's your stretch goal that's your stretch goal and if that stretches you to like that one little next level then then, then that's a win and you know everyone and you know you don't get to k2 uh, by starting with k2 <laughs> and that maybe brings us around to where i wanted to start today john because we first chatted back in 2016 when you were contemplating going to climb everest right it's actually the whole seven summits with manaslu as well and you had done manaslu as an 8000er during that year yeah 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 so take us back to that like and Specifically, like, how was that experience of training for Everest different than, you know, this time around training for K2? Yeah, so, I mean, I had, uh, I, I would say I was a completely different, uh, a completely different athlete than I had done quite a lot of fitness. Other, you know, I was probably doing a lot more weights in a gym um, and other sort of recreational activity, but nothing uh, anything structured or, or or with a particular goal in mind um, at that point really in my life. And so I, I got in touch with uh, with you, Steve, and, and we uh, did one-on-one coaching for uh, probably about eight months, eight or nine months, I think it was, prior to the uh, commencing the Seven Summits attempt, which was Denali in the mid middle uh, of 2017 um and at that point really you know when we when we started out really 
I probably had very different um, needs or requirements from 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 a coach, and that was you know I needed uh, some structure put into a training schedule. Um, I really needed to be accountable for those uh, for those workouts, and and then um, also just being able to basically understand how to how to train what what you know I, I something is something as simple as understanding that i needed to limit myself to zone 2 heart rate while i was doing ex, you know anything from 1 hour to several hours on a treadmill or with a pack on my back or or running i mean that was something i it's, it's, it seems very logical and sensible uh, now to me but at that time i i i i didn't know that so um those would have all th- those were all really what i needed back then um mm-hmm. fast mm-hmm. forward then really to to now um you know i would I, I kept up a lot of the aerobic fitness over the last uh over the sort of the five years um since everest i uh, got into well, can can I interject something that I just wanted to touch back on 2016 and 2017 and, and just say, you know, I think that this, this process is really normal, right? Like we, you know, it's the difference. And I've been through this with a lot of athletes where it's essentially you learned how to train like prior to working with me, you know, you didn't, you worked out, you exercised, you were fit, but you didn't know how to, train especially for an aerobic endeavor like mountaineering and that's what we that's what you learned through that process and i know we had a lot of communications about that and you're like hey why am i doing all this like it doesn't make sense at first and that's completely normal it typically takes athletes coming from that background like a couple of months to actually get bought in honestly like and i don't try to force anything down anyone's throat so you're just like look trust the process we've done this before this is how this works what do you want to know what would help you to understand you know you want to you know here's the physiology here's the you know the background all that stuff and then one of the things that i think you're about to tell us but i think is really interesting is you know you 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 stopped working with me as a coach after you climbed everest but then you continued to do bunch of other uh endurance sports and yeah and 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 actually before i before i uh touch on that i just just remembered that back prior to um engaging with yourself back in 2016 i'd already i'd I'd started my own training and i you know and i had felt that i was going to be able to train on my own and mm-hmm. I had basically the sequence of events there were I decided today's going to be the day I'm going to start training. And I went out and started running, went out and ran for an hour. And then the next day went and ran for another hour. And then on the third day went and ran for a third hour. And then I had such severe shin splints that <laughs> I spent probably about the next three weeks unable to run at all. So uh, you know, I, I that just probably can paint the picture of how naive I was at that point in my own journey. And uh, you've never seen an athlete do that, have you, Martin? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <sir. laughs> 
I was certainly had the ambition um, and was willing to start uh, enduring some pain and discomfort. And I think at that point, I believed that training had to be uncomfortable and painful to be worthwhile. And, and you know, these are, these were just all things that I learned as, as the months uh, played out um, at, at that point um, with Uphill Athlete. I would like to maybe set the context here because I only started to be involved in your preparation and training in the last months leading to K2 expedition this year. So there is this story since 2016, right? So be maybe it would be good to mention to listeners where you actually live. So because that is the yeah one of the most impressive parts. You live in Australia and so there's no mountains around, at least not very close. And how do you prepare there? To climb the mountains i think that's what many listeners can relate to quite quite a lot and uh it is possible and it's not it's challenging but then you know all this journey to k2 without oxygen i i mean it, this is impressive you know that the your story is is uh, uh really impressive and uh so m- maybe talk about it a bit well i think probably the the part um you may be we're not aware of was when I was training for the seven summits, I was living in Muscat in Oman. So I was living in the middle East. And I mean, if, if, if Brisbane in Australia where I live now is flat, where I was living in Muscat (laughs) in the middle East was, was dead flat. And so that, that, that was a challenge. Um, And hot, if I remember right. (laughs) And hot. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, go into Denali from there. Yeah, for for you know for seven eight months of the year, you know you're talking about the temperature getting over a hundred degrees Fahrenheit by by nine a.m. So you know you can't you if you if you want to go and do workouts, they've got to be either in a gym or or you know very early. Um, and so yeah, you feel pretty you feel like a real outcast when you know there was a, there was a bit of a, a slope behind Muscat probably went up about, uh, I don't know, 200 meters or something like that. And, but there's no trail or anything. Nobody ever goes up there, but I used to just drive, uh, to the bottom and then, you know, basically just hack my way to the top on, uh, on loose rock and, and, and dirt, um, with a pack. Cause that was, that was what I had to work with. Um, and then, and then this time around, yeah, I'm based now in, in Brisbane and Australia. And uh, I really didn't want probably one of the things I was dreading most about training again uh, with Steve was was getting back on the on the stairmaster. I had uh, I have nightmares still thinking about the some of the long five hour sessions on the on the stairmaster uh, back in 2016 2017. So I think when Steve gave me the well reassured me that this time around we could we could try and keep a lot of the a lot of the pack carrying sessions to outdoor um that was that was certainly a huge relief uh and i was able to find a a section of trail uh probably only about 20 minutes drive from home that had about 100 and 120 140 meters of vertical that i could uh basically climb and then dump water out 
return to the bottom, fill water up again on a on a bubbler, on a public bubbler, and then and then back up again and do and do laps. Uh, so um, and then and and not one stairmaster session in a gym uh, had to be had to be done. Yeah. So let's talk about those intervening years between 2017 and 2022. You know what? You know you you be. You know, it it was also as a coach, it was a bit of a shock for me because we hadn't really communicated in that interim. And so, you know, for me, you were still frozen in my mind as that athlete I worked with, whatever, five years prior. And then you come back. And frankly, it took me a little bit to realize like, oh, wait, this is like a completely different person now. Yeah. So I think through through all the lockdowns, I mean, I look, I, I, I maintained my fitness after uh, Everest, um, it now really, really was valuing maintaining a level of aerobic fitness, um, that I probably didn't really value prior. Um, and then with all the sort of COVID lockdowns and, and all of this, I, I got right into road cycling and into, into truck triathlons because just, well, the triathlons came a bit later, but certainly the road cycling was a, was a, was a sport that I could get into, um, when, when it was, when I, when I couldn't travel to climb mountains and I couldn't, you know, uh, go overseas or anything like that. So, uh, and, and with that, I built up, you know, I was probably doing about 15 to 20 hours a week of, of, of cycling and that was probably 80% of it was on an indoor trainer um, and which friends of mine would all say was, was, it was a crazy way to spend time, but I always sort of would say, well, it's, it's not, necess- not nearly as hard as, a, as an indoor Stairmaster. Uh, so I built up a reasonably strong engine, I think, through a number of years uh, of, of cycling and then transitioned then into some some triathlons and and uh i think at that point you know i i think at that point i felt like i you know it's now a a long term you know i now now i see myself as 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 being more an aerobic athlete as opposed to prior to to the seven summits where i was probably just looking to gain as much muscle mass as i could and, and 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 had other objectives um and uh and so, and so, yeah. So then, kicking into the training for for K two, it really felt at that point like I I knew how to push myself for long aerobic sessions. I knew how to I, I I knew how to train. I knew how to train for an event and 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 how to put together a bit of structure to my to a to a multi month program. Um, I think what I didn't have and will probably always struggle with is an ability to avoid overreaching or overtraining. I I am probably that personality that when I get excited about an objective, it's all I can really think about and it's all I really want to put my time and effort into achieving. And that is has led me on down a sort of a, a, an unfortunate or negative to a negative outcome time and time again. And usually it's with some sort of injury uh, that really is just, just, just trying to ramp up too much too soon. And so. 
And what, can I stop there? Because I want to say like you were injured when we started working together. Tell, tell me about that. Remember yeah. that? How, yeah, so yeah. how like, paint the picture for those listening, you know, how you presented when, you know, you first started talking to me about working towards K2. Yeah. So I had, uh, actually I broke my foot in at the end of November last year and it was just a, just a, a it was, a, it was a silly accident. Um, yeah, but nevertheless, you had a, a broken foot. Yeah. And... and I had, again, you know, I'd, I'd, it was around the same time that I'd said, right, you know, I'd want to go for K2 in the following season, so sort of seven, eight months ahead. So, you know, three weeks after breaking my foot, I'd take the boot off, the big moon boot off, and I sort of felt like that that's usually how long people wait with broken broken you know bones and before they get back into activity again and so I started running and uh, of course it hurt and I sort of tried to push myself through it and um, you know really excited about this goal of k2 ahead and trying to push myself straight back into hour long 90 minute long runs and see the pain didn't go away and then went to see a went back to see a doctor and they said, look, you know, there's just, this, this is just far too soon. You know, you need to, you can't, you're not going to be able to run at this three weeks or even four or five. And I ended up think I think I ended up having to wait about nearly, nearly 10 weeks before I could even go for short runs. Um, yeah. And we were talking during this period because you were anxious to get going. Right. And uh, you know, I was, I was, I was counseling you to, <laughs> to, to keep playing the long game and uh, we'll let this thing heal. And then when we started back, you remember the runs we started back with that I, I prescribed when we first started, how long were they? Well, 15 minutes. And, and uh, I mean, frustrating. <laughs> yeah, you were, you were about to reach through the screen and throttle me when I, when I told you that I only wanted you to run for 15 minutes. I was feeling so, um, so uncomfortable with it like i don't know if that's even the right word but but yeah that i almost went and did runs and didn't upload them or something you know to training peaks yeah, you know yeah. almost went and did like you know unreported runs, runs. Just, just because my 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 just couldn't get my head comfortable with you know the thought that all i was doing now was 15 minute runs i mean i was doing cycling that was obviously the, the the workaround a bit for the for building that aerobic uh fitness but yeah duration we're getting we were getting so you were getting some longer you know indoor cycling you know so it's super safe uh on the trainer you can fall over or something like that but yeah there, there was some definitely workarounds with that yeah and and if you uh, could say something to that uh, John of almost a year ago, what would you tell him? Uh, that yeah, don't don't stress out about the the little bumps that occur. You know, I I am always you know I I, I think in some ways training I find training a bit of it's almost it's it's therapeutic because it makes me feel like I'm doing everything I can to get to that goal and when I when I'm denied the opportunity to train it it does it does bring a lot of I would say it brings on a bit of anxiety um that I 
I probably don't do a good job of, of managing, um, you know, exercising when I've got colds and flus and whatever, because I, when I really don't need to be doing that, uh, because at the end of the day, you know, you're, you're, you've got a, a seven month horizon or something to your goal or, or whatever it is. And, and just being a little bit disciplined and stepping back and saying, look, I've just got to focus on getting well, getting, getting back. And that, and in fact, it's, it's, it's by stepping back and allowing yourself to rest properly that actually gets you back quicker and then training properly again quicker and probably gives you a better chance of being where you need to be come game day. 100%. 100%. And, you know, it's really hard to do for yourself. You've never had an athlete do this, right, Martin? <laughs> no, we certainly recognize uh, myself in there and I think many clients also, you know, there's this therapeutic aspect of training, but then we... It, it, there is a difference between training for training, I call it, you know, that the, you just get out because you just love the feeling and uh, and maybe like also helping with the anxiety, maybe in the mental stress throughout the day. So you just want to go and move and train and it feels good. But it's not always the smartest thing to do on a given day. We need the recovery. We need the training, like the smart plan for the training, right? So... There are those two aspects. So I really recognize a lot uh, what you're saying, John. That you know, sometimes it's a, it's really uh, hard to stop. The setbacks feel hard. The injuries and your anxiety. Am I doing enough? Will, will I be ready in time? Uh, and all of that. But uh, now, retrospectively, I guess you know that. Wow, like it, it all made sense. And yes, I lost a bit, but it it uh, doesn't take that long to get back. And um, but yeah, it's it is not perfect. We're not perfect, and uh, <laughs> and it's just good to be out there and pushing yourself. And I'll add on to that. I mean, you know, we. I'm thinking about the upper athlete coaching staff. You know, we've got four athlete, four coaches who are really active in their athletic careers right now, and you know, you, Martin, and Alyssa, particularly competing and and doing things on an on a world-class level and i think martin you're the only one of those four that don't have a coach like the other three all have a coach and these are coaches that have coaches <laughs> and the reason is it's really hard to have that perspective you know it's it's you are absolutely forgiven <laughs> if you if you need someone to, to do that because you know there's also this saying you know the, the reason a coach has a whistle is to tell people to to stop not to start Right. And, it, and it's so true. Uh, this is, this is, you know, it goes both ways. Sometimes people need motivation and accountability, and sometimes people need to know what's the smart thing to do. And this was absolutely, for me, a, a really hard period of our relationship, John, because I know that you hated it, um, you know, in terms of starting out. And, and, you know, I know you thought I was being too conservative. And I was telling you, like, look, like, it doesn't matter if you do a 15 minute run right now or a 30 minute run right now. Like, on the day you summit K2, this is, that is not what's going to make the difference. What's going to make the difference is, like, if your foot's still broken or not. And, uh, I know that's hard to hear. Um, and, you know, it, it really is 
powerful to have someone kind of holding the reins and someone that you trust. And I, you know, I think that that's, that goes to the heart of the coaching relationship. You know, you really trusted me and, you know, I have to thank you for that. And there's only so much I can do. I can explain, I can talk, I can cajole, I can send you messages. <laughs> I can try to sweet talk you. I can try to threaten you or scare you <laughs> with what might happen if you don't kind of, uh, you know, stick to the kind of quote unquote right path. But ultimately it's your decision to trust me as your coach to, that that's the right thing to do. And, you know, you're able to do that. So that's, that's not easy. So. Yeah, we got through that. It was a, it was a, it was a tricky period, but we got through that. Yeah, and, and perhaps to to tie that back to the probably one of the, the the really the primary reasons why I I got in touch with you back in 2016 was I I I, I wanted to feel like comfortable that everything that could be done to prepare me for this mountain as best as possible was, was now being done. You know, I was being mm. advised on how, on, on, ev- on all the fitness related steps to take to get, you know, to, to prepare myself as, as, as well as possible. And as soon as I, I, I can still remember it, it's eight, seven, eight years or seven years ago when I, when I first got in touch with you and, um, and we had a call and, when I hung up after that call, I remember immediately feeling a sense of pressure come off my shoulders that I've now felt like, okay, now I don't have to feel anxiety that I might be training the wrong way or that I'm training overtraining or undertraining mm. or, or you know, whatever. Now I feel like somebody who absolutely understands this has, is, is, is got, is going to control that. And that was, you know, that was a huge weight off my shoulders and, and, by the same token, you know, fast forward now to earlier this year, I I had to recognize that, you know, I, I it was, you know, I I wanted that I wanted to to bring in someone that I trusted, and then and then and it's and 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 I had to recognize that in trusting you, I have to trust every decision, you know, every everything you're you're telling me. Um, so so yes, it was um, certainly. I found myself thinking, is this really going to be enough for, you know, for, for, for this mountain in five months? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, you know, and, and I think there's probably, there was also a part where I was thinking, for completely honest, I was kind of thinking like, Steve doesn't, Steve doesn't know who I, like, doesn't know who I am. Doesn't, you know, he's like, he, maybe he, he doesn't, he's not, recognizing that I've gained all this fitness since last time we spoke or, or something like that. And, and so, you know, all those sort of thoughts go through your head when you, you're looking forward to a workout tomorrow and it's, you know, posted in training peaks as a 15 minute jog doesn't, doesn't really feel like it's, uh, doesn't fire you up. No, it's not, it's not kind of what I, I'm certainly not, um, telling all my friends that, you know, this is what training looks like for K2, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, it's not made for TV, but yeah, it's, yeah. So once we got your kind of confirmation that your foot was healed through a kind of, I would say there was a two pronged approach. One, it was these, these easy runs and just continuously checking to make sure that there was no, 
increase in, in pain and you're ta- you know tolerating the, the movement and you know going back to the doctor and kind of getting uh getting some film you know and, and knowing that that was the heal that it was healing uh and you weren't you know there there could be a situation with a, a foot fracture that isn't allowed to heal properly where part of the bone can actually die um, because it's not receiving enough blood flow and you know that's that's obviously to be avoided at all costs. That has like lifelong consequences, especially for an endurance athlete. So uh, that was in the back of my mind as you know a worst case scenario that we wanted to steer well clear of, right? So now go into the let's fast forward a little bit, and you know workouts start to get longer. You did a lot of training on your on your bike uh, because you do live in Australia and, and Brisbane, and it's part of your life and part of your you know part of your social network and you and your wife ride together and, and, and things. Um, and then I want to kind of fa- fast forward to, you know, as we get, you know, this typical progression where we start off very generalized in our training, but the workouts need to become more and more specific, more look more and more like the event. And so as we got into the spring, we started to shift things around and try to get you on your feet more. And then we brought in Martin as well for some, help let's talk about those footborne workouts first and you mentioned earlier you know about the weighted carries um you know how were how did that go for you and living in brisbane i mean brisbane's you know there's topography there but it's not it's not you know big mountains right out the back door yeah that's right so there was the uh there was those those pack carry sessions um which i was able to do on a a local a uh, little sort of little peak, uh, which were probably 120 meters vertical. Um, I think, I think the uh, one of the one of the real benefits I was getting out of those workouts was, as as you'd um, instructed me to do, so I I just wore trail running shoes rather than really supportive hiking boots, and in doing so on the moving on the uneven on the uneven surface up, up sort of quite a, quite steep, quite a steep incline. I could really feel that that was uh, demanding a lot of stability through my knees, my hips and ankles. And so I think probably one of the, the real benefits that I got out of those sessions was, was building up that, that stability. Um, Perhaps you know even the the aerobic gains I was getting then might have even been secondary to the to the to the the benefits that I was getting through building up all of that a lot of that uh, that stability. Um, otherwise, uh, the other the other workouts certainly that I feel like I got a lot of benefit from were these uh, muscular endurance workouts. I'd never done anything like these before. Um, and and perhaps just to to quickly summarize what they what they look like um i would do these once a week and i would start off just with with no weight at all and progressed up to to about 20 percent of body weight uh, in a vest on my chest but i would start by doing 20 step lunges and have a and then straight after the 20 step uh, lunges, I would do, uh, sorry, it was 20 jump lunges. Uh, then I would have a, say, a one minute rest. And then I'd repeat that and then have another one minute rest. And, and then I would do about eight sets of that. 
and then there was eight sets of jump squats and then eight sets of uh, box step-ups and then eight sets of uh, normal lunges with weight. And with each week, I would, the, the either the, the weight that I was holding would increase or the uh, rest between each of the sets would reduce. And right up to, I think, about week 14, I'd be doing, after my 20 jump lunges, I'd have a 10-second rest. And that would be with a 20 kilogram or 18 kilograms in a in a vest. And then again, another 20 and then 10 seconds rest. And that really was something, you know, that, that, that was something I really had to build up to. But once I re- achieved, even, even by about week eight, nine, 10, I noticed that when I would go for my weighted pack carry sessions outdoors, that my resistance to fatigue was had increased in, dramatically. So I could, you know, I could hike up for whatever it was, 15 minutes and at, you know, at quite a pace with uh, 30 kilograms in a pack. And I just was not feeling that burning in my legs that I would always have expected to, to, to feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would, it, it was, and I, and I really feel like these workouts played a big role in when I, when I then went on to K2, which is particularly, you know, as, as everyone would know, is a particularly steep climb where you, you know, you are, it, it is very, it is very intense on those, on those working muscles in your legs and, that resistance to fatigue that I'd been able to build up was, uh, you know, really, really helpful as far as not burning myself too much during those days, not arriving into camp absolutely wasted and in need of, you know, all this, you know, several days of rest or going down to base camp to rest properly. I could, I could bounce back again the next day and, and, and do it again. Um, and so, so yeah, those, those workouts, I think were, were very, um, made it, made a big difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Martin, I'd like to, uh, hear your perspective on this because what, you know, John did two kinds of muscular endurance workouts, as you know, he, we did the gym based and we did the outdoor. And this is frequently a question that people have, um, you know, maybe they're using a training plan and, and both. Uh, are presented as options and people always have a lot of questions about this like which one should they do should they switch back and forth like you know talk to me uh talk to the audience talk to the listener about these muscular endurance protocols and how you how you use them as a coach uh for an athlete like john Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the good point. So I would uh, start maybe with the specificity, as you mentioned. So um, I started to help out with uh, John's plan in the maybe three months before the expedition. So that's really the period where you need to be specific uh, towards the goal. And this the goal was K2, a really steep mountain. So how to best prepare for it? What do we include in the plan? What we don't include in the plan to really make the good use of his of his time? So. Uh, I had to look at the plan, how much time, John, uh, you have for training per week, uh, per day, 
uh, and then really uh, determine, okay, usually I do it as a key workout. So usually there's like two, two workouts per week that are like kind of making the difference in that training block, right? And then the rest is really mostly zone one, zone two, uh, zone two training. Uh, so in this last block before the expedition, one of the key workouts is the muscle endurance because that really is very impactful as, as John, you mentioned that you really felt the difference within maybe a couple of weeks and months. You really felt it already during your outdoor uh, uphill hikes. So um, the sec then the other session, the other option is also the outdoor one. So I usually try to mix it with my clients or, or also for it, for John that I, I know the mental aspect, the impact it has on clients to do it uh, indoors, but sometimes there's just no other option, right? You, Best would be if the client, if you live in the mountains, if you live in Chamonix or or in border Colorado or I don't know, close to Mount Rainier, that you can actually train on, in the mountains and you have the specific terrain really right at the door. But that's usually not the case. Uh, actually, I think most cases our clients live in the cities or in a very low altitude. So how do we connect the dots? How how do we make it specific? So. It's, it's a lot about you know, inventing, and uh, but sometimes you just need to do the work. You need to stay in the gym, and you need to really um, stress the importance of those workouts, and uh, that really the adaptations coming out of those will make a big difference. And so I would say that back to muscle endurance, it's, I think, one of the kind of, how to say, signature workouts of uphill athlete. They are really making a big difference. And... Um, then the rest of the workouts was really to keep the volume, even increase it. But then also we were coming closer to the, the expedition. And uh, so there's this really important, important factor we needed to address and was really challenging was the altitude, right? So the how to acclimatize and uh, ideally... Before we talk about the acclimatization, Martin, sorry to interrupt. Uh, but before we talk about the acclimatization, I just want to stay on the muscular endurance workouts for a moment because you're right. It's a, it's a signature workout. And as John pointed out, it makes a massive difference. Your legs just don't get tired. And, you know, when you've experienced the benefits of this, it's, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. This really works and it's really valuable. <laughs> One of the things I like to tell people when I talk about these workouts is, you know, why is the gym base muscular endurance workout good it is good because it's easily easy to control all the parameters right we can we can adjust by two two kilograms really you know we can adjust that load we can we can adjust those work rest intervals and we can get kind of let's say geeky about what we the load we're prescribing and why why do we choose a particular load well because we're looking for a particular response. So as a coach, when you're looking for a particular response, you can you can go into the workout and make small adjustments that as an athlete, you might not really notice like, oh, wait, we went from like a 60 second rest to a 20 second rest. Why is the coach doing that? You might not even think about it. But as a coach, you're like, okay, like now we've, we've done this this many times. I've seen this kind of response. I've gotten this kind of feedback. I'm going to make these kinds of adjustments to this workout or the 
work rest interval or the weight carried and it's also always in relation to the goal right like how heavy is that pack going to be how high is john going to be you know where is the where is the lowest hanging fruit for this athlete in terms of making a significant gain between now and their goal and these are kind of all the all the things that a coach is thinking about and i don't have a recipe <laughs> like yeah you have to actually sit with hundreds of athletes and go through it and you know you get a feel for it and a lot of it's communication right what john is telling me what's he writing in his comments what he's writing about his rests all these things and the good thing about the outdoor workouts as you said martin is like mentally it's just more fun and it feels more like climbing and you're you're you you know it's fun to go hard it's fun to do these things you get to see views you get to see the sunrise you get to, or the sunset or whatever like it's it's easier to to do a big uh workload it's it's harder for all of us to at least i think motivate to do these workouts in a gym setting so it's okay to mix them back and forth if i'm just being a geeky putting on my geeky scientist hat like i would prefer to do them all in the gym and where i could like tweak all the little variables and try to maximize you know, or optimize this athlete. But this athlete is also not a robot. This athlete is a human being and has other, you know, has emotions and, you know, other needs. And it's important to feed those as well and not like get them burned out and stuff. So there's this, there's this balance and this push pull of, of this. And some athletes, I just honestly will only have them do outdoor workouts, muscular endurance workouts. Uh, even because their limiting factor may not actually come down to optimizing the physical part. Their limiting factor may be coming down to optimizing the mental side of things. So these are all the kind of considerations that go through my mind, um, you know, yeah. when prescribing and working with these different types of muscular endurance yeah. workouts. And, you know, it's, 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 you need a community, you need to, you know, like on the coaching team, we talk to each other, like, you know, Martin, you kind of became my partner coach with working with John and gave me a conversation partner to talk to someone about like, you know, bounce ideas off and just have discussions around like how to proceed and how to optimize for John. <clears throat> and I think if you're, you know, working with from a training plan or a training group, you know, you'd also it's really helpful to have some kind of community of, of, of people, whether it's on a forum or like with friends or on similar journeys and to, to, to sort of balance ideas. Cause there's no, you know, there's a, there's a worst case scenario and there's a best case scenario, but most of the scenarios are somewhere in the middle of the bell curve. And that's where we live most of the time. And um, that's where we want to stay. So just wanted to kind of put that all out there. Yeah, I agree. I, there's just so much to, to talk about here about how the how we work as coaches and on the individual coaching level especially. So the individuality is really important, as you mentioned. So what is the responsiveness of the of the athletes to training? So that that is different for mm -hmm. everybody. So it usually takes quite a long time to actually figure that out. And uh, it comes to communication and uh, just following the process of trainings. And obviously it helps if we have this long-term relationship as as you have with John. And so listening to the to the history of the athlete, uh, if he or she comes from more like from the strength, power background or from endurance. And uh, so, but then also mentioning the muscle endurance, uh, gym-based and the outdoor-based, I like to think about it um, also like a spectrum from uh, like let's say maximum strength to endurance, right? So it really comes to let's say one one leg squat. So um, 
the maximum strength is really the the individual movement that you can do like a maximum what kind of weight can you carry doing that and then it comes to basically running where you the load is so small that you can just do like repetitively for hours and hours on end so it really is this spectrum from strength to endurance and so the muscle endurance is somewhere there on that spectrum and so i would say that the gym based one is closer to the maximum strength because you're doing lower amount of repetitions right and with more weight and as you say it's controlled and it should be also because there is a chance of getting injured also if you do a bad movement and with with uh, heavy weight and maybe then the outdoor based uh, it's usually longer it, it is about going up the hill with the weight on your shoulders a uh, good thing about it is really specific to the mountaineering but i would say it's a bit closer to endurance on that strength endurance mm -hmm. spectrum that's sure. how I like to yeah. think about it. That helps me also to determine, okay, when should I start the gym-based one, uh, maybe further from the event, from the, uh, from the objective, from the climb, and then really introduce the outdoor-based outdoor uh, a, bit, a bit later, how, how long it should be, th those sessions, how long should they be. But it's very individual. It comes also about what the objective actually is, what, it, what does it look like, and... Yeah, so it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. It's always very needs to be individual. And uh... John, for you, um, you know, I think that going back to connecting to some of the things you said earlier, for me, as I was coaching you through this, you know, two things that I had to adjust to. One, when I first worked with you in 2016-17 you were more of like a gym rat learning how to endurance train and and then in the interim you'd suddenly gone off and become like a really good endurance athlete and done all this really long you know long duration cycling and triathlons and stuff and you were i would say um you were always good you were never lacking motivation i never had to like you know you always did your workouts that was not the thing with you um the thing with you was making sure you didn't kind of do too much and that can be hard for a coach because when i'm trying to tell what what how as martin said the individuality of your responsiveness to the workouts like how is the workout actually affecting you you know your responses are always like i feel great i can do more and that's really hard for a, a coach because I'm like knowing knowing that that's always the response I get, and I would always have to ask like more questions or dig in, like, well, what about this or what about that or are you feeling this? Because I'm I'm looking for you know the the and the, and for people working with a coach, you know, the best thing you can do is just be really truthful with them for you and everyone's different right like you're a optimistic guy john so you you know you're you paint things in that in that way and i learned that and and i i tweaked and knew that you know the other piece of it is as a coach as an athlete gets fitter there's less and less you can do to make them better and there's um more and more you can do to make them worse <laughs> there's more and more you can do to make it uh, make them regress by by stepping over a line so so the fine tuning becomes more and more fine and it's like i i just gotta i gotta stay on this side of the line because if i go over the line he's he hit k2 is off right like so i'm trying you know there's always like this little little judgment so the other piece of that now that i want to go into is that uh 
hypoxic uh, training. And with you, John, you know, we wanted to, this is something that, you know, in the past with uphill athlete, we've been very skeptical of the benefits of normal baric hypoxic, you know, stimuli of all different kinds, whether it's sleeping in a hypoxic tent or using a, one of these restrictive masks, or there's a bunch of different modalities. Um, because the, the jury was really out, like it's, and one of the things that we've kind of settled on over the years is we've realized through just the good old school of hard knocks that train coaching athletes while, while they're sleeping in a tent, for example, use that case, uh, they just can't recover because the quality of sleep is so, so poor and they're, you know, there is a, you know, a, a kind of a conventional wisdom out there that what is it, Martin, you need around 300 hours in a tent. Is that the, is that the number that, that, um, people yeah. are kind of throwing around these days, uh, to get yeah. an effect. And so, you know, that's a big, that's a lot of hours. Uh, so we, we say, okay, we'll do this with people, but we will have them in a mate training wise. We'll have them in a maintenance mode while they're in this acclimate pre-acclimatization uh phase whether they're sleeping in a tent or whatever and with you we couldn't get a tent to australia um so we had to we were using a we elected to use a, a mask and martin you want to talk a little bit about how you helped set that up and you know then john i'd like to hear about your experience yeah so um yeah, it's such a huge topic, and so um, well, I stepped in to help out with with, with John's plan really, again two three months before. So that was really about the time to ask those questions: uh, Can you acclimatize? How long will you have on the mountain? Uh, you know, how long will you actually be in Pakistan? So that there is a lot of these uh, informations that I need to know uh, before if we actually should invest into the pre acclimatization I call it. So doing it at home. And so again, another question I can ask: Can you, John, maybe travel to some mountains like a trip before before Pakistan, where you can train, where you can maybe even work uh, online or something, uh, just being away from home, but actually acclimatize on on in the real altitude? So um, that's that's you know so many questions to ask first before we actually start talking about using the hypoxic tents or the mask, right? So. Um, there is a difference. There's uh, the hypoxic tents. Uh, they it's it's a it's a normal baric hypoxia. So uh, the altitudes, the difference between that and the altitude is that the the pressure changes when you go to high elevation, and that really affects uh, how you get your the oxygen into into your body. So um, the the options for John were limited for traveling. Um, and so we needed to try to use uh, the the hypoxic machine. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, Steve, the tent wasn't possible, uh, so we had the mask. What is the difference there is actually that the tent allows you to spend quite a lot, quite many hours per day uh, whilst you sleep whilst you sleep in the in the tent. So you can write maybe seven eight hours per day. And so then the aim is to really accumulate enough time for the body to go through the first stage of the acclimatization 
And for that, you need about at least 200 hours, but ideally 300 hours before you leave for the expedition. And if you count what that means is actually about 12 days, I think, you know, 24 hours per day to 300 hours. So it's really as if you went to the mountains and acclimatized as class in a classic way, classic way, trekking, trekking in or climbing some acclimatization peaks there and a lower, lower altitude, three, four, 5,000 meters, really going up gradually, but you cannot do that. So you need to try to uh, accomplish that using the tent. Tent wasn't possible. So then the next, uh, next stage is to use the mask. And so um, sleeping with the mask, I've tried that with clients. It's not great because you can you can imagine that it's just very not very comfortable, and the sleep quality is really reduced. And so that is always this cost benefit, as you mentioned, Steve. That uh, yes, we are getting the acclimatization effect, but we're really losing the recovery effect of the sleep. So there's always this um, discussion to be had, you know. But we really need to make sure that the client is prepared the best possible. And um, I used to be skeptical about it as, as well in the last years, but actually in the last couple of years, I've been studying altitude physiology at school and just learning about it, the new research coming out and all of that. So uh, now this last year, I had this great opportunity working with Abil Athlete as a coach to use it with many clients and the results are just uh, it's just confirming it works. It's really the best we can do if there is not the option to go to the real mountains and the real altitude. So um, then going to the using the mask. So it's really the protocol where you you're exercising with the mask on and with the reduced uh, reduced oxygen content in the in the air you're breathing. So you're actually creating this hypoxic situation. Uh, your body senses it and starts to adapt. And so uh, body adapts on many levels. Uh, the, the physiology of the acclimatization is very complex, but uh, it really is uh, you get the, you're getting the EPO effect, the erythropoietin. So uh, yes, you, it, the, in the process, body is trying starting to acclimatize by um, by forming the red blood cells, increasing the hematocrite, and so increasing the oxygen carrying capacity. But also there is an, there are really important processes happening in the muscles actually, because you are exercising in the hypoxia. So for me, that's a very important factor where you are actually doing something really specific. You're, you're training in, in the hypoxic situation. Um, I, I would like to actually hear from you, John, like how did it actually work for you? Uh, because we couldn't really accumulate the 300 hours. Th that's the ideal situation to, to try at least 12 days in the total amount of time uh, of acclimatization before K2. So we couldn't do that. We, you were only able to use the, the mask. So how did you actually feel up there? And also, how long how long did you have to actually before the actual climb? And then also, how many rotations did you do before the summit push? Because the conditions are also were really complicated for the for the acclimatization process on the mountain, right? Yeah, yeah. So I guess uh, the the initial uh, advice from that I that I'd got from you both was was to try to, to source the uh, the the unit and the uh, the tent I could being in Australia probably a lot less um, uh, opportunities to rent the uh, the the unit so and I and and I couldn't 
actually find anyone who would supply a used or new tent in country. So that was then going to have to come from the US, which I think was going to take, I think by the time we decided that I was going to do this, I think there was about eight, eight or nine weeks um, before, before I was off. And I think, you know, I was going to probably end up burning two or two weeks, just getting the tent. And then the, I think the cost of getting a tent was, you know, suddenly made the whole exercise quite a lot more expensive. So I, rented the the unit and <clears throat> just with the mask and then I did the two different types of uh sessions so either the on the on the tr- uh the bike trainer um mm-hmm. stationary trainer with uh the mask on uh for anywhere between I think 20 and 40 minutes I think we sort of worked up to about 40 minutes by the end um and on other days, I was doing the intermittent breathing. So just sort of on the on the couch at home, I'd have the mask on for, I think, about four minutes and then off Found. for about two minutes yes. and then repeat that about 10 times, I think, was, I think, or maybe even slightly more than that by the end. But for so about an hour, some yeah. bit okay. of a progression. That's right. Yeah, about an hour. Um, and And whilst doing both of those, I would have the oximeter uh, on my finger, so I'm measuring the blood, uh, the oxygen saturation, real time, and I'm effectively adjusting the oxygen on the hypoxico unit to ensure that I was uh, had a oxygen saturation at the particular target, which was usually at around 80% or or maybe a little, sometimes 78%. I think I was sort of aiming for. Yeah. Start, start probably a bit conservatively so that we don't uh... 95 or something initially or something and then and then working down yeah yeah certainly you want to do starting about like 90 percent usually try to really let it drop down so that that's actually the reflection of that the body senses the you know the the lack of oxygen and so you offset these uh, adaptations uh, the first stage of adaptations and then you can allow yourself to we we try to let it drop down to even the 80 80 85 percent so but that's really a bit later in uh, in that process yeah and i can say that the it was a real learning curve for me uh to to using the machine so i you know i would get on the trainer uh the bike trainer and i would warm up without the mask on and then I would put the mask on and I'd be trying to trying to keep my heart rate where I wanted to sort of keep it and keep the saturation where I wanted it to be was 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 I found was quite was quite tricky and it probably took me two weeks at least of, of workouts that were quite ugly just trying to to work out how you know there was a there was obviously there's the the volume of air that's coming through that you can can control as well and so sort of working out how i could breathe timed with the pulses of air coming out of the the the, the unit um you know i would i would say for anyone who's listening that it's if you if you're using one of those for the first time there you you have to expect a bit of a learning curve i mean I, in the first week or two i was getting frustrated that i couldn't you know, I couldn't figure it out. And then of course, you know, if you just take the mask off and stop, you, you, you're not actually getting any closer to figuring out how to balance everything delicately. You kind of just have to keep 
persevering through that workout and just keep doing those little fine adjustments to either your intensity. So I'd be adjusting the watts on the trainer or adjusting the the sort of the knob on the on the hypoxico uh, unit. Um, but, but you know, once I would say that those those sessions that I got on the trainer really, I felt I was getting a real benefit. I, I, look, I'm sure there was a a, gr- a great benefit um, occurring uh, on the level that you just described there with your bl- red blood cell count. But I could what I was actually finding was I was getting more and more comfortable breathing air in a sort of in a in a restricted um, capacity. And so initially I would be almost panicking a bit when I couldn't get air in, when I wanted the air and I'd be tearing the mask off and gasping for air. And then I found that I, as things evolved, I got more comfortable with that, that sensation of, of really having to, to suck air in. And I, 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 I have this sort of belief that that, paid that 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 had a secondary benefit perhaps when i was on the mountain and i was now in this oxygen depleted deprived you know environments and i was really having to to suck the air in quite actively um so yeah that was a that was a i feel like that was another benefit i think it's it's great to hear your experience john and i i think i want to kind of zoom out for our listeners for a second and kind of make a general observation about training that you know, this is sort of how things progress. <laughs> we're, we don't know exactly why this works and we don't know how well it works. And honestly, like we're not even sure if the benefits truly outweigh the risk because there are things, just so many factors that we do not understand. And that's how this all progresses. And it's typical of, I think, endurance, you know, the hundred years of endurance training you know, research and practice that's been done is, you know, coaches and athletes work together and they're trying to figure out better ways of doing things and preparing for events. And, you know, you try things and they're awkward and clumsy and, uh, you know, difficult and frustrating and all of those things. And we think they help. And then like, it can be that years later we find out, you know, oh wait, well, what we were doing, man, that's actually really bad. And now like everybody who did that is going to have, I don't know, like permanent problems with their hematocrit uh, or something like, who knows? Like, you know, there's, you know, one of the things that I remember about, I always think about when I think about uh, how to do adaptation is uh, some unpublished research that I've seen uh, by uh, Dr. Robert Shoney, who's a, a researcher based out of Colorado, where he's doing these this lo- these series of long term studies on people going to you know roughly I think it's a little above five thousand meters, and he's mapping the human genome uh, of these of these people as as they as they go through the acclimatization process, and there's like. I, forgive me if I get these numbers wrong, but I think it's like there's 6,000 switches on the genome. And I think like the, I think like he said, you know, of those 6,000, 3,000 are sort of downregulated and 2,000 are upregulated. Like there's far much, there's far more going on in the human adaptation to altitude than our old models said like it used to just be this model around 
you know, um, you know, we're respiring more so that we're breathing off more carbon dioxide. So that puts us into, you know, changes our, our respite, you know, changes the, the, the balance of, of carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide and oxygen in the bloodstream. And this causes, you know, blood acidosis and da, 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 da. Like it used to be, it was a model and it was relatively simplistic. And there are certain observable things about that, that we can say, yes, that happens, but there's a ton more that is happening. And it's interesting to think about what you were just saying, John, like, okay, like your comfort with breathing, and you just wanted to rip off the mask and you became more comfortable. Like what's actually happening there? Like the reality is like, we don't know, but this, this feedback that you have that I became more comfortable. And I think it helped me when I got to high altitude, like we also have to give that weight. Is that a measurable thing that we can like, you know, write to, you know, nature and publish a scientific finding on? No, of course not. It's, an, it's totally anecdotal, but this is kind of the way we kind of, progress and we probe and we figure things out and we think okay this is working and then martin's involved in really interesting research in his master's program on you know other things about high altitude adaptations and trying to understand like the role of the you know in his research if i, if I may say the human spleen and how that what role that organ plays in in a compensation how that might be a factor and how that might be something that we could actually uh you know stimulate and measure and you know another thing that we could tweak in terms of preparing people for a high altitude and it's and it's it's really interesting to be like feel i feel like we're on the ground floor or not really on the ground floor but like on the first one of the first floors of like building this piece of human knowledge around like how to how we acclimatize climatize you know we started with you know it wasn't that long ago people thought that if you went climbed everest without supplemental oxygen that you'd come back permanently brain damaged and never walk and never be able to talk again that was literally what they told Reinhold Messner and peter hapler when they were before they went and climbed everest without oxygen for the first time in 1978 and obviously like those guys are both still alive they're super competent they're super charming <laughs> you know they're highly functioning individuals all that was false right so uh yeah it's just fascinating it's just so cool to be part of this i get so excited about it <laughs> yeah it is fascinating just to like a anecdote to hear that now i'm involved in the research in the study and uh so many journal articles even the recent ones uh usually f uh, uh, finish with the okay so we observed um whatever and uh but we the mechanics behind this are still obscure. We just, we just don't know why it's happening. Yeah, yeah. It's just observed yeah. that yeah, climatization, uh, people experience this, but we just don't know why. <laughs> or, yeah. you know, it's and so that's completely and normal. That's the way normal, this process yeah. works. We don't know why. And then later they figure it out and say, oh, this is why. Yeah. Um, Okay, so uh, maybe I, I would like to ask John, uh, how did it actually go on K2 then? We're going back to the mountain now. Uh, what was the protocol? You, we, you already said in the previous um, podcast that uh, the hike in took you about a week. Yeah, that's, that's right. It was uh, about a week. The actual expedition itself was about uh, 10 days shorter than... Pretty much all the other expeditions, uh, or all the the other the other main expeditions, and I think the 
when Steve and I had a call a little bit before I, I, I left and I sort of just started to sort of introduce the possibility of, of trying to attempt without oxygen, Steve sort of looked at the, the, the start date of the trip and when we expected to be at base camp versus when the summit windows typically come on K2. And he basically said, look, I think this is not enough time. You, you won't have, you know, you'll need to, you'll need to get a rotation up to within a thousand meters of the summit. And in the, you know, the three and a half uh, weeks that I had at base camp, it was not going to be sufficient to do a summit push and then probably what would have needed to be two rotations. So um, obviously, the you know, so I'm sort of I, I, perhaps somewhat regretting being on an expedition that's got a shorter total duration um, and, and, you know, feeling, I guess, like my hand was now forced with this start date that I would, that I would have to climb with oxygen. Um, so anyway, did the hike in, I mean, the, 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 the trek in is, um, is as, as sort of mentioned on the previous podcast, it's a challenging trek in it's, uh, it's, it's, it's nothing like a Everest base camp kind of, uh, a trail defined trail or anything like that. It's, it's, it is, it's, um, yeah, quite, quite uneven, quite un- not defined, uh, and and in really for probably more than half of it, you're just on just on rocks that are moving underneath your feet, and so you you can't really move very fast. And you, although you don't gain a lot of altitude with each day, you, I think the actual trek itself is challenging enough that it's, it's probably already kicking that acclimatization process off um at least at, at least that's sort of how i how i kind of felt um yeah, and then too, uh... we got to we got to base camp and you know we couldn't really move for the first four four or four days or five days because of just just snowed mm. it was just effectively a, a, a blizzard for four five days um we had uh you know, nearly a, probably about consistently about 10 inches of snow just sitting at base camp. Um, and of course, with that, everyone, all the negativity starts to spread around base camp that this is not going to, this is not going to go this year. Um, but then when the snow did, then when the, the sort of the storm passed, we started with, you know, just a, 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 a a walk up to advanced base camp um, and then a day later went for a a, a rotation so uh, we went and spent one night at camp one and then one night at camp two and my hope was to get beyond that uh, if I was still to keep any hope at all of being able to attempt without oxygen. However, the weather came back in again, and we, after those two days on the mountain, we had to descend back to base camp. Um, the Mingma, who was uh, who, who who runs Imagine Nepal, the expedition I was on, he was uh, supportive of my 
um, ambition to 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 attempt without oxygen, and so he offered to offered me to do another rotation um, when the weather cleared. And it just so happened that the weather cleared after I'd only had one day in base camp. And normally, you know, you would have come down from, you know, 7,000 metres having really put yourself under a fair bit of stress and you'd be wanting several days at base camp, eating base camp food, enjoying the 5,000 metre altitude and all that all that oxygen. Um, so. I was certainly nervous about only having a single day before going back up onto the mountain and effectively having to get significantly higher on that next rotation. Um, And look, there was one other guy in the group as well who wanted to attempt without oxygen, but he couldn't, he just didn't feel that the one day in base camp was enough. So I went with a Sherpa and we went up and we did one night at camp two, straight to camp two. And then we did a night at camp three or this, this Japanese camp three. And then we did a day trip right up to the actual camp three. So we were now, we'd now got up to about 7,500 meters or so. Um, and then back down to base camp. And I mean, those two rotations I found I would say very challenging. I would say they were, I was, I felt like I was, obviously I didn't, we were were pushing, I think, as far as an acclimatization schedule, um, a rotation schedule, you know, we were were probably being quite aggressive there with minimal time in base camp before going for rotation one and then almost no rest before going for a second rotation. but with you know with the second rotation i felt at least the first the first up to camp 2 felt easier so i felt like i was i felt like things were improving but still still feeling pretty nervous about a, the prospect of of going any higher without oxygen um mm. but anyway completed those two rotations and then back down to base camp knowing that there was potentially just enough time to recover before the sort of potential summit push might 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 go. Okay, it is just uh, that's what we talked about the what you can control and what you cannot. Those factors there, the scale of the mountains, <laughs> the conditions, the weather, it's just totally out of your control. So uh, it comes to really be prepared physically as much as you can, which you did, and so then the acclimatization plan you ha- you can have a plan, but then the plan also goes out the window window because the weather just doesn't play out so you need to do the best you can so i think i think the the what i tried to tell what i what i had told myself with before i even started training was i want to reach a level of fitness so that i have you know, I have the options to be able to potentially go for a short wind- weather window or, you know, if the weather window suddenly, we're at base camp and suddenly a weather window appears in two or three days from now, I, I have the fitness to be able to get up the mountain quickly and be able to take, to be able to 
participate in that. Or, you know, I want to be able to have the fitness so that I don't, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not completely wasted when I arrive into camp and that I am, you know, and, 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 and despite being at altitude, I'm, I'm capable then of, of, of getting my resting enough that I'm able to get back to a point where I can go again. Um, and that was, that was always sort of the logic I was, I was just trying to, trying to, trying to go by, you know, that, that I can do, I guess, tick all the boxes that I can tick as far as preparation. And, you know, I guess with the training ticket so comprehensively that I could potentially accommodate some of the things that I can't control, like a short weather window or that, or, or that sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, and then, and then go to the mountain knowing that I've done everything that I can do. And then, you know, there's, there's going to be these other puzzle pieces that really, you know, need to, need to fall into place and they're a bit beyond my control. This is really, John, you summarized what a pill athlete and what training for the new alpinism was really built upon with that first book, which, you know, was how I approached my expeditions, which is this core thing that people need to understand is one of the hallmarks of fitness is that you recover really quickly. So this is where, like you touched on, like you would be able to turn around and uh you know make use of a short weather window when i was climbing you know doing things in alpine style the 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 recovery was sometimes six or eight hours in a tent at night on a bivy ledge right so it's 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 a similar thing and i would often um sort of look to things like the race across america or you know long three-week stage races like the tour de france or something like that where you know as an athlete you're performing at a high level every single day could you show up in one day and ride faster or climb faster or harder or whatever sure but that isn't actually the objective the actual objective is you're at k2 base camp for six weeks you don't know which day is going to be the summit day you don't know how many rotations you're going to get you don't know what's going to happen to you on those rotations are you going to be breaking trail are you going to be drafting or is it going to be icy is it going to be deep snow like there's so many variables and so yeah, the fit the fitness you're gaining is really one of kind of a of a high level of resilience and uh, ability to bounce back. Given all these factors, altitude, of course, is a major one, but it's still only one of them. Yeah, I would like to maybe just uh, this. These are great points, Steve. Uh, uh, sometimes I think about it in when I'm coaching athletes, uh, bring the adversity, a bit of adversity, into the training as well just to mm. prepare yourself physically and mentally for these moments when you just have to get out even if you're so even if you're so tired and so be ready physically but also mentally for when it gets hard when there are just really bad days and you know things are not perfect they will not be on the, especially in the mountains and spe specifically in K2 without oxygen so i think all those setbacks that you had maybe the last year with the injuries all those that the anxiety you, you felt but you still pushed through and maybe it wasn't perfect but it prepared you also for this the the, the adversity of this climb yeah certainly yeah that's a great point great now i want to thank you john for all your time and 
willingness to share your story and everything you learned along the way of these, you know, years of, of training and climbing. Martin, thanks for showing up today, being my discussion partner, my sort of co-coach for working with John. It was a lot of fun to have those conversations. And I always learn a lot in working with my fellow coaches and uh, hearing other perspectives. So thanks to both of you for being here today. Thanks, Steve. No, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity, guys. Thank you. Thanks, John. Of course. It's not just one, but a community. Together, we are a pill athlete. Thanks for listening.